Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Chris Bogia was born in Wilmington, Delaware in 1977. He received his BFA at New York University and his MFA from Yale University, and he currently lives and works in Queens. Chris is the director and co-founder of Fire Island Artist Residency, the first LGBTQ artist residency in the world located in Cherry Grove on Fire Island, New York, as well as an instructor of sculpture at New York University. Chris is the recipient of the 2018 Queens Council for the Arts grant, the 2017 Rima Hortman Foundation's Artist Community Engagement Grant, the 2015 Tiffany Foundation Grant, and is a current artist and resident at the Queens Museum Studio Program from 2016 to 2018. Recent exhibitions include shows at the Queens Museum, CF Hill Gallery, Stockholm, Kate Worbley Gallery, Ortega e Gasset Projects in Brooklyn, and a solo presentation at the Spring Break Art Show. Upcoming shows include a two-person exhibition with Jesse Herod at Grizzly Grizzly in Philadelphia this coming May, and cast of characters curated by Liz Collins at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division, NYC, this summer. I spoke with Chris on the heels of his show at the Spring Break Art Show, and we spoke about his early days sneaking off to Philly in New York City, older siblings, the allure of fabric, his starting a residency, becoming an artist, and much more. Here's our conversation. Okay. So where did you get your start? Uh, I don't even know because you don't. Yeah. I didn't see your webpage. Right. And it doesn't even say. I don't even know where you're from. It's very bare bones. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware. Is this where we, it's not something you're trying to keep? No, it's not a secret. <laughs> I'm 40 years old and I'm from Wilmington, Delaware. There. <laughs> All the cats are out of the bag. Um, nice. Yeah. I grew up in Wilmington. It's uh, a very small city that you drive. Everybody drives through it on their way up and down 95 yeah. in like a second. And it's really close to Philadelphia. So, you know, my earliest like rebel high school art memories are like cutting school and going to Philly to like watch art movies mm-hmm. and um, drink coffee and buy hair dye. So nice. <laughs> that's like, that's kind of like, that was Delaware. I mean, strangely, Wilmington is also the place where um, the designer Jonathan Adler is from. Oh yeah. And you know, I've used objects that he's made in his store mm-hmm. and I used to sell his stuff when he first moved to New York because I worked for Todd Oldham mm-hmm. back in the 90s. And so it was weird because I think we'd both been probably like in the same living rooms looking at the same oh, yeah. decorative objects from the 60s and 70s and mm-hmm. had that kind of bouncing around in our heads. What was Delaware where you grew up was there kind of uh yeah century modern leftover of things around or like yeah I second mean, hand shops or things like that nothing like nothing like commercially available but you know i was born in the late 70s and the house i grew up in was at one time my grandmother's house she didn't live with us but uh you know we weren't super close to my grandparents but my grandma had pretty eccentric taste maybe it was normal taste for the time really mm-hmm. but to me, it, it seemed amazing because we had like my parents' room had like bright fuchsia shag carpet, like really deep pile. And my room had like purple and blue shag carpet. 
there was a lot of shag carpet. And isn't it I, funny carpeting when you're growing up? Yeah, has such a because you spend so much time on that stuff. When you're a kid, yeah, you crawl all over it. Yeah. You live on it. You pl- do Lego on it. Like I mean, it's like it's the landscape, and you're so low to the ground that yeah, it's yeah. like very real. And then the wallpaper. I remember my mom and dad's rooms wallpaper was this giant like one foot by one foot trellis of like these huge rose bouquets and I mean it was like (laughs) I don't think I could I guess I compared it to like my other friends houses who like didn't live in their grandma's house and like their parents decorated their house which whatever was more I guess acceptable at the time so like I wasn't seeing it everywhere else I was just like seeing it at home was it a big or a small house it was a ranch I have three siblings so um, my brother and I shared a room my sister shared a room and my parents, I mean, it was pretty, I guess it was like a decent sized ranch house. Mm-hmm. And then the basement was always where the next oldest sibling would move to before they left the house. Well, really, I guess it was just my brother, but I moved down there too. My yeah. siblings are like 12, 14 and 16 years older than me though. Whoa. Yeah. I was, That's a big I was gap. totally an oops baby. And you have like five parents. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of them more than others, yeah. but it was kind of weird because they would all, you know, my one brother-in-law I've known since I was conscious of memory, you mm-hmm. know, because they she, he started dating my sister when she was 16 and I was two. Whoa. Yeah. Now they're married. So it's like, that. you know, I have like extra siblings even. Yeah. Um, but they all moved out by the time I was like maybe preteen. So mm-hmm. then I was an only child, which was sucky. Yeah, <laughs> like was I, it, I didn't, I didn't want you, any of that attention. Were your, oh, I, I would think that by kid four, the parents are a little, Oh, like they've moved on from parents. Okay. So that's a good point. That's a good point. And I really should be appreciative of that. I had no curfew. Mm-hmm. I was totally trusted foolishly. Right. <laughs> um, because I appeared to be less ornery than certain siblings of mine, but I was just as, and like would have parties on the weekends and, mm-hmm. you know, sneak people in the house. Cause my parents would go away on the weekends and yeah, I mean, but the, but they were also like, on the verge of empty nesting and I feel like like I was the last one and it was really hard for my yeah. mom to let go for sure really hard and I wanted to move to New York I was like later <laughs> it can't be. It's, it's like a lose-lose right like if you're early on if you're the first child oh yeah my they're sister, gonna obsess over you yeah and she fucking holds it against me yeah <laughs> <laughs> because you know they're worried about every little thing yeah but then if you're the last child they're kind of like what you're fine yeah. You'll be fine. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you probably want that. It almost seems like they don't care that much or they're just checked out a little bit. I think like for me growing up, like my siblings all grew up together when my parents were really struggling financially and working super hard and they've always worked super hard. But I think by the time I came along, they were in a more comfortable place financially. There mm-hmm. weren't like those stresses happening as much. And I think I was a little bit spoiled, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's definitely something that I've been reminded of by the rest of my family. Yeah. So what did they do, your parents? Oh, well, my yeah, that's my my dad sold pharmaceuticals when I was really young, and he was very good at it. He's a great salesman. And like door to door sort of thing. No, like he was a rep for uh, an inhaler company, and they would so like you know he would go to doctors' offices and say like, hey, try these inhalers, and here's a free box of samples to give your customers and like maybe you buy them if you if you know that kind of thing yeah. that's like what most pharmaceutical salespeople do and he was really good at it but at a certain point 
uh, he decided to go to work for my mom's family's business, which was an Italian baking company. Mm -hmm. So like not like a little corner bakery, more like a plant that makes rolls for schools and makes the wonder bread that you eat in the grocery store and wholesale. yeah, Yeah. And all my siblings actually worked there at some point. I mean, I, my dad would take me to the bakery on the weekend sometime and I would like clean off old machinery like to earn money to go to summer camp and things like that. My so, dad did that for a little bit. Yeah. He worked at an Italian bakery, but it was I would go once in a while, but it was like a like a I just remember machines and like right. factory. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, no. a shop or No, something. there's like slicers and baggers yeah. and all these things. Yeah. And like I wasn't really supposed to be there when they were working. So but on a Saturday when things weren't working, I would go in there and But the smell you oh, never forget. This no, thing. no, it's funny. Like, and, and whenever I'm like in an area, uh, industrial area in the city and I, I like get a whiff of like that commercial bakery smell, like mm-hmm. it's, it kind of, it totally brings me back. Yeah. Cause I just remember going there constantly. Cause my brother worked there. He still works at a commercial bakery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that was my family business. I mean, definitely like, uh, slightly above blue collar, middle-class Italian family. Mm-hmm. was kind of how I grew up. Well, outside of like partying on the weekends when they leave and being trouble, when yeah. did you start? Were you always creative? Always. Um, you mentioned Legos. Isn't that uh, yeah. where a lot of us get our start? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 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 Definitely Legos. Um, I know that like just really simple blocks, anything that like could then be, you could then project your imagination on to like fill in the blanks mm-hmm. was really appealing to me. I loved to draw. I loved to like do crafts. Um, I was the first things that I thought of as art were these things on our, my wall in my house that I knew another person had made, whether it was my older sister or my mom or, or who knows, but like, like a cruel embroidered little stretching or, you know, a, a latch hooked pillow. Like those are the objects that to me felt like the most charged with potential as far as creative things went, because they related to the materials that I was drawn to, which was colorful textiles mm-hmm. always. And uh, I started doing that stuff too. So my mom would take me to Michael's and I would pick out like wood chips that were like carved in the shape of like swans and I would like paint on them and then make a wreath and like give it to my fourth grade teacher. Like mm-hmm. I was a really like I wasn't like the best student. I like talked too much and I was like, I didn't pay attention. That was always my report card was like, talks too much, doesn't pay attention. It's like boring shit. Why would I want to pay attention? Right. But, um, that was just always something I was really good at. So like my mom would encourage me to like make gifts for my teachers. That's nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so they would like, this will ingratiate you so they would <laughs> like me more. I think <laughs> it worked in some cases. And then in other cases, like I remember I made this ceramic, uh, dunce, bench with a dunce hat on it and gave it to like my first grade teacher she was really she was first grade was tough because that was like kindergarten ends it doesn't matter that you can draw really good anymore Mm -hmm. even though you got tons of praise for it for about a year that's over that's over i was in catholic school it was very strict yeah it was sucky and uh yeah i really did not do well in catholic school i I don't know many people who really (laughs) breezed through the catholic school experience I feel like people who are interested in math and science really do fine. Oh yeah. Cause it's like, that's, that's like really the most important thing. And disciplined. Yeah. Like you can never act up really. Right. Right. I mean, as a result, like I didn't get picked on as much as I would have if I'd gone to public school. So I was probably pretty, I was pretty glad. I was pretty conscious of that because my siblings who had gone to public school had, you know, dealt with all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And being a little sissy, I was like, Oh, like I knew that I was probably in the best place in the situation but Mm -hmm. I couldn't wait to be in high school 
even though I went to a Catholic high school, it was a much more liberal environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I got lots of encouragement to be creative there. What do you had a good art teacher? Amazing. Uh, this guy, Donald Becker, he was an incredible art teacher. I had a couple art teachers, but it wasn't until I had him that I felt like I had an adult that was like, I see you and I'm going to tell you how to like get out of here alive and do well. Yeah. And he was like, he, I remember like he turned us all onto the velvet underground, like really early in high school, which I mean, for most, I think artistic people of a certain age is like a really transformative yeah. moment. Like it's like, Oh, this, yeah, this exists yeah. and it's, it's amazing. And it's like speaking to all the freakish impulses in, in me in a really like lovely way. And I, I, I remember like <laughs> sit laying, I was, I was now in the basement. I had now graduated to the basement and that shag carpet. And I was laying on that shag carpet on a tufted pillow with my brother's old speakers on either side of my head in the dark, having just kind of come out of the closet to myself at 17 and like listening to like heroin Mm -hmm. and like not wanting to do heroin or like even like having a conception of what that is. But like that, just that songs like desperate kind of thumping is like, it was, I was just like, I just was like, I can't, I just want to like propel myself five years into the future and just like be, in New York City. Right. I knew I wanted to be in New York. You my, couldn't wait. No, my art teacher was like, you got to move to New York City. As soon as I started coming out to people, they were like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like there was no one else out in my high school except for my really close lesbian friend who's actually, not, she, it turns out she was not a lesbian, but she was um, like an amazingly supportive queer person in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got the hell out of there. Was it like, you need to go to New York? Everyone said it. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, and, and, it helps that you were close too. I mean, Delaware. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and Mr. Becker had taken us on several class trips to see galleries in at the time. So, oh, that's cool. Wow, I, that's a good art teacher. Oh yeah, he had lived in New York yeah. and had been an artist. And um, he got married and had a child with special needs and had to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, for you know to to be a responsible parent, really. And and so I think he he like wanted us to like get it. Yeah. And without any hangups, just like really pushed us, right. especially me. And um, I remember going into a gallery. I'll ne- I don't remember where, but it was, it was a Paul McCarthy exhibit of these um, animatronic cowboy oh, figures yeah. and Indian figures like that fucking one. each other in mm-hmm. the skull and shit. <laughs> and he was like, none of you can tell your parents what yeah, you've just right. seen. And I was like, I don't, I was like, I, this is, I have to be here. Right, right. <laughs> I was like, Cause this shit doesn't phase me one bit yeah. and I can't stop thinking about it mm-hmm. and I want to be a part of this. This is where I need to yeah. be. It's <laughs> funny too, because uh, with the velvet underground, you probably didn't know the whole Warhol or the backstory or all that stuff, but it got but there's me there. Something about the music. Oh yeah. Yeah. The music mm-hmm. unconsciously channels that kind of, oh, I think that's like that with punk rock and people. It's that like, fuzzy, dreamy, beautiful femme fatale. I was like, it, as a queer guy, a kid, I was just like, I just knew that song was for me and I would yeah. play it over like my sisters and my mom, like they like knew that song as well as I did. And like, you know, it's just funny cause it would just be playing up from the basement constantly. Right. <laughs> Were you always into music even as like a little kid? Yeah. I always liked music. I remember my favorite album as a kid was Carol King's, uh, kids album, really Rosie, which is, uh, I never heard it. it's, she said a bunch of Maurice Sendak, uh, stories to music and, uh, and they're really good. And it's, 
beautiful music. And so I remember like loving that. And then, you know, having older siblings was cool because they were mostly pretty cool. And like, listen to Bowie. Well, they introduce you to things that if you're only child, you'll never get. Right. Or you, you, it would take a lot longer. Right. But like, I remember listening to rock lobster and jumping up and down on the bed in Mm -hmm. my room that I share with my brother, just like, that was like a kid's album to me. It was yeah. that first B-52s album. That was a great record. Which is like a perfect album, right? Yeah. Like every song is amazing. And yeah. so, yeah, I got I got into music pretty early. And then I loved singing and performing. And I started singing in chorus and singing in shows. And I started taking private opera lessons. So I, because I was actually, I showed a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain point where I had to kind of decide like, well, which one is it going to be? And I knew I like hated competing was singing it felt so risky to rely on your body to like perform on demand Mm -hmm. in that way and art was just something that like I felt like a virtuosity that I could I could excel in like I felt a lot of confidence Mm -hmm. it was it was where I found a lot of confidence in in high school and art class are you just mainly drawing or making ceramics or things or what were you we didn't have ceramics but I was really into uh the Vertigo comics line from DC, which was like kind of like a a more mature uh, branch of DC comics where like indie writers and indie artists would, would work on stuff. And I remember like Sandman was this like incredible comic that Mm -hmm. Dave uh, Neil Gaiman wrote. And um, he was like friends with Tori Amos and I love Tori Amos. So like, it was just like all of these things like kind of worked out to bring me to that. And, he worked with this cover artist, Dave McKean, who would make sculptural covers that they would photograph. And he also did a bunch for Doom Patrol and they were really weird. And so I started making sculptures just because I wanted to make things like that. Yeah. They were a bit illustrative, but like based in mythology. And I was always interested in Greek mythology. So, you know, those kinds of iconic symbol things I wanted to like render in every form I could. So I started yeah. doing sculpture in high school, too. So the things that you were kind of drawn to, whether it's mythology or... I don't know, it seems like like fabrics, like specific things that may relate to what you're doing now. Like yeah. It was just intrinsic, right? Oh, for sure. It wasn't that those were the only things that were exposed to you. Yeah. It was kind of like that's what you gravitate. That's to. what I was drawn to. And then the one thing that we haven't talked about, which is like my guilty pleasure, but is so important about the work in a way that I think people don't often see is like I've been a video game like enthusiast since like Atari. So, yeah. you know, that's always been this world that I've spent a lot of time in and being a queer kid and feeling like a sissy and like not feeling comfortable playing sports like it was this very um at least at the time and probably still unfortunately very male dominated activity right like Like boys boys played video games right and I was very good at them and so that gave me a lot of comfort you know so I spent like billions of hours in like these environments where you're like running to the left or the right usually against like a black background that's like a stand-in for like a lush landscape. I mean, in the beginning, they were so basic, right? And um, I don't know, like I spent so much time in those landscapes and got so much comfort from them. I would, you know, as a kid, when you start to draw, you start to draw the things you like, and I would draw like Mario. Yeah. And, you know. um, God, but, that game. How yeah. many hours did I spend on Super yeah. Mario Brothers? Oh, my God. None wasted. I can tell no, you that. Still, <laughs> and kids nowadays still love it. I it's know. It's timeless. Shigeru Miyamoto, who created that game, is one of the greatest artists of our time. Yeah. I mean, like, he, his influence will be remembered forever. It's Definitely. Especially for, like, American kids who were being exposed to Japanese uh, 
art and illustration for the first time, like it was kind of mind blowing because you're like, what is this? Like you look at like your Atari and it's like Pitfall and it's like three pixels. And then there's this whole fantasy land that doesn't repeat over and over again. Anyway, it teaches you so much like Pitfall. Just saying that brings me back to playing that game. And there was a point to where I couldn't get by it. Like I, I got stuck. Yeah. So that taught me a life lesson on like <laughs> sometimes you have to retire from the it's game. It's true. Things, you, yeah. You know, there's hurdles in life. Yeah. Pick yeah. Your battles. <laughs> that was Pitfall for me. Totally. I mean, Pitfall was really fucking hard. Yeah. Really hard. And avoid snakes at all costs. Yes. And alligators. Don't <laughs> yeah. don't jump on alligators. Right. Um, when their mouths are open, otherwise it's fine. <laughs> uh. But there, there's such a flatness to all of that. I mean, yeah. then, you know, you fast forward to like 1995 when everything gets polygons and it's all 3D. Everything prior to that was so flat and so uh, communicative with very little resources. And I definitely look at my drawings now and the way I make and the way I make things now. And there's a flatness to it that it's never like an intentional thing. It's just how I draw. And I know that it's related to the hours and hours and hours I spent in those places. And it's cool because when I was in grad school, I was trying to make work about video game landscapes in a very literal way, like taking screenshots of like pirated game files and collaging them into like lush landscapes. But it was, it was alienating to a lot of people who didn't have that same kind of emotional response to the subject matter. Right. Right. Like Jessica Stockholder was like, I don't get it. And And I (laughs) it's almost like you zoomed in too close. Exactly. I zoomed into I I was like too much of a fan and not I didn't let it like wash over me in a really uh, instinctual way. I kind of like was like, this is my thing. This is me. And um, and I was such a brat about it, too. I remember like being so pissed in my crits when like none of the faculty had like anything to say about the work. And I'm like, this is the largest entertainment industry in the world. And it's like. I can, I can imagine what like people who started making like art films, like how they felt <laughs> in yeah. the beginning, you know, it's right. like when people were like movies aren't art, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, people, it, it's still not going to happen anytime soon, but it will. Video games will absolutely be pulled into that world in some way. Well, maybe it was just partially to the specification of the aesthetic that you were tapping into mm-hmm. just didn't correspond to their relationship to that. But everyone right. has that shared experience of getting lost in some sort of world. Like a lot of us have these formative years where aesthetically things are like ironed into your psyche. Right. And they mean so much to you. Right. You're constantly trying to get back to that point. Yeah. And for them, for Jessica, it might've been, who knows, like something a lot different, probably, but can still relate to that, (laughs) that impact that, that whatever it is, because in a way video games is kind of, even though it's a huge pop thing, it's counterculture. Yeah. In the sense that it's like an alternate reality. Yeah. So there's an escapism in that. Oh, for sure. And everyone has escapism in some way or another. That's yeah. what daydreaming is. That's what like. That's what reading a novel is. Exactly. Yeah. So people can relate <laughs> to it. It's just sometimes yeah. you zoom in too close. Yeah. Then you alienate people just on the aesthetic. Whereas if they can get past that, they right. can see what you're trying to tap into. Right. Right. And that's I, the difficulty, I think, of teaching. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always ask my students, like, what what are you into outside of school? Like mm-hmm. what gets you going? Like, what are you actually into? Like, do you read art theory and like look at art history books like for fun? Like if you do, then that's fine. But I'm guessing most of you don't. And right. it's sort of like if you're not pulling those things that really interest you outside of making art into making art, then I feel like that's, you're doing it wrong. Like, I feel like that is like something 
everyone can learn in art school or like, you know, it, I think it's, it's like a helpful way to be a teacher where you're not being like, it should be more this or more that to meet like my aesthetic mm-hmm. desires. It's like, well, what do you like? And then how close is this thing channeling what you like about that thing? Right. Right. And so that's always like, especially grad students, that's how I talk to them. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I teach a lot of undergrads intro to sculpture and it's like, then we have to just like learn how to do shit. Right. Yeah. Just run. <laughs> so we don't get hurt. Yeah. Run, run ideas <laughs> out. Just keep running them out. Yeah. Work through yeah. things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but that's the the key, I think, is to find within someone, like, what are they trying to say? Yeah. What is the feeling they're trying to connect? Yeah. Not your interpretation of it, whether that's succeeding or failing. No. But what they're trying to get across and how they can do that better or how they can connect with more people or get that idea across in a more universal way, even if it is specific, you know. That's a really difficult thing, I think, to, uh, to navigate. And that's, like, kind of what, that's where I was in grad school. I was zoomed in and kind of like the ethos of like, well, screw you guys. You don't get it. Right. You're old timers. That's exactly the kind of bitchy shit I said in school. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, Jessica, I love you. And like, she was like such a good teacher and the things that she said, she wasn't like really that, like she would not like erupt with like a million things. She would like say one or two things Mm -hmm. and you'd be like, fuck you. I don't think, you know, and then like, you know, 15 years later, I'm like, oh shit, she was so right about everything. And like, what the fuck was I thinking? It's like parenting. (laughs) It's like, you know, the parents say things to you, it drives you crazy. You're like, you don't get me. Yeah. And then, you know, 15 (laughs) years later, you're like, you know what? Mom and dad might have been right about that. I'm still waiting for that one. My parents voted for Trump. (laughs) Never mind. Well, it doesn't. I'm still waiting for that revelation. (laughs) But no, I absolutely hear what you're saying. And like, for sure, like my teachers, like they were smarter than me, and like I knew they were smarter than me. But like sometimes you just don't want to hear shit, you know. It might not even be <laughs> smarter too. It's just experience. Yeah. Like when you yeah, see things, for sure. You know. Mm-hmm. Like I can't. I I feel like nowadays I've had enough experiences where I can talk to a s- student and feel like I can share something productive with them. Whereas if I think I was teaching right out of school, it would just come from one angle. Those are the worst teachers. Yeah. Or I mean, critics, not as a rule, but like oftentimes it's <laughs> yeah, tough when people are really just out of the gate. It's just like when you have like a school teacher and it's their first semester teaching, like they can be like super hard on you because like they haven't quite realized that they're not teaching themselves. They're like teaching a group of children. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I often say that that also visiting artists who come in and just. Yeah. They never teach. The critiques come, oh, not all always, but a lot of times. Oh yeah, they just come in and destroy the place. And I've been wrecked. crushed dreams. We've all been wrecked, right? We've been <laughs> yeah. totally wrecked. Oh, I had, yeah, dream crushing experience. Oh yeah, I mean, I those are probably good though, right? Because you have to build yourself up. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, I I invited probably the most insane one to my studio, <laughs> actually after willingly? grad school. Yeah, willingly, totally willingly. Um. One of my art heroes, uh, Jim Hodges, who I think is just, I'm often attracted to artists whose work material choices or their studio material choices are like, um, like, I guess less conventional or like more, more in the service of like the kind of poetic sensibilities and things that they're trying to, to convey. And I think Jim is like a master of that. He's always changing materials and, and 
really never taking any art material for granted. Like, mm-hmm. it's always like, but would this be best served by this thing I've been doing for a while? Or should I investigate this totally new thing? Have to learn all this new shit. Deal with fabricators. It's like, you know, that's when you're a sculptor, like as soon as you have to deal with a fabricator, it's like, oh, am I really doing this? Yeah. Am I about to throw all this money behind this idea that I have no direct hand control over? Mm-hmm. That's super scary. It was, it's really scary for me when I do that, but it's been great for the work. Jim came to my studio after me asking him like as a after you know he had come out to the fire island artist residency and he'd asked and i'd said hey come to my studio and he came and oh man it was like <laughs> again jim i love you but <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't make work for like three months dude like i was so fucking paralyzed like because everything he said was pretty much truth to power and mm-hmm. like i couldn't really argue with any of it but I didn't know how to respond to it. Yeah. You know? And it was like, okay, I see what you're doing. Full stop. Right. <laughs> and, um, man, it was like, I, I think like, be, like it's hard when you, when you meet your heroes that way. Mm-hmm. Like I'm never inviting Joni Mitchell to the studio. She's never allowed to come. <laughs> you don't want that. No, because that's like a truth to burn. It's like burns too hot that like, if she said anything negative, I like, just burst into flames. Yeah. It's probably best, right? To keep a distance. And she takes her her artwork very seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, she considers herself a painter first and yeah. then a musician. Right. So, like, I'm sure she'd really be serious about yeah, it. Yeah, she right? would have some serious opinions on you. She's your never work. allowed to come. That's probably a safe. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's a, there's people who say that all the time. They're like, I don't want to meet my heroes because I yeah. feel like I'll be let down if what if they're a jerk or you know i mean i it's like it's weird because sometimes they're awesome like i moved to new york with like a few like weird fantasies some conventional one was to like find love mm-hmm. um another was to be an artist and another was to like work for todd oldham <laughs> right so like <laughs> right. i would watch house of style which was basically like the first queer programming on television and like there he was like hosting this, these segments where he would like show you how to dye your hair or reupholster a chair. It's oh, like, that was on MTV, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. And it was like New York. Like it was like, here's yeah. MTV, like bringing what's cool in New York in the nineties, which is, I think like when New York was extremely cool, or at least mm-hmm. a time when New York was extremely cool. And like, sh- like demystifying it for one, for mm-hmm. one thing. And like showing you this incredibly sweet, generous person who just seemed like, someone I wanted to be like a very nice creative person, like making a living, like doing the things they love yeah. and, and not being like bitchy or edgy mm-hmm. the way like club kid culture was at the time. But yeah. like, I was like, I can move to New York and have this, you know, this could be my identity. And I worked in high end retail all through undergrad and that like, was NYU, right? Yeah. And I would go to, so I would walk around during my lunch break to the stores I actually wanted to shop at, which were not the stores I worked at. And number one was Todd Oldham. And this, the, the clothes, again, like all these textiles were like the textiles I grew up with. He was, he was uh, recreating cruel embroidery on gowns. Mm-hmm. Um, the colors were incredibly vibrant and shocking. He's actually colorblind, which is interesting. Um, Yeah. And so he can't see like certain colors. And so sometimes his color choices, I think accidentally become like way more challenging, I think than like he maybe even knows, but to me it was like, like so sophisticated Mm -hmm. and, but also so familiar. And, um, I would go in there and I'd pet their dog and I'd like save up for like months to buy Usher. And like, that was like such a big deal for me. And like, Mm -hmm. 
they, they eventually asked me to work there and I was that the store on was Wooster? Great, on Wooster. Yeah. It was and a, it was Jonathan's stuff was in there too, right? Yeah. Jonathan Adler. Uh, what I now know is that when Jonathan Adler first moved to the city, he actually like him and Simon Doonan like, like stayed with Todd Oldham and Tony, his business partner and life partner, like in their like little apartment, like while he was getting started. Wow. Like they were like unbeknownst to me, they were already a community. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was looking at them like, wow, it's so weird. Like aesthetically, like, they're thinking about the same things I'm thinking of. And they kind of became like my art heroes in a way because all of my inspiration had always come from interior design and decorative art and fashion and fabric. And um, here were these people, here were these gay men like living this life of like creating this culture like that. I didn't know. I didn't know that was a job, you know, <laughs> so yeah. it was it was totally eye opening to me and I aligned myself with them, you know, Um Aesthetically, it was already aligned from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it just, it made sense. Um, but yeah, that, those, those working there was amazing. And it was so, it was such an important influence on my work. I mean, nothing I was looking at in school or art history or in galleries was remotely as inspiring as like the hand crueled gown that like, you know, he had in the window of the yeah. store that I got to like touch every day. Right. And it was that kind of tactile thing that, like, I think it was my junior year of undergrad. I was like, I'm going to start gluing yarn down and trying to do that myself. And, like, I literally started doing that. Like, What were you doing before that? You know, you had a studio at NYU? No, I didn't have a studio yet. I was an undergrad in my junior year. You don't get a studio until your senior year. Back then. Now it's a little little more flexible. But uh, there were a lot of deadbeat grad students who were, and this one girl was just like, I mean, if you want to like work in my studio, it's like fine. And <laughs> Can so, you like, imagine going, no, going to grad or going to grad school and barely. Or she was a senior. I'm sorry, she wasn't a grad student. She was a senior, but like she wasn't that serious. And she was like, if you need a table to work at and need to store your stuff, you could do it in my studio. Well, that's nice. Yeah, it was super nice, and I did. And then, um, and that's when I started making more ambitious work that like mm-hmm. you couldn't do in your dorm room, right? I mean, it was up until then, it was just like assignment based stuff I was really I mean I spent most of my time in in the sculpture basement I would like make a sculpture that was like ambitious enough and had enough materials that I could like hand it in for like my photography class (laughs) my painting (laughs) class diversifying (laughs) yeah no I was always doing that and then I was also doing a lot of performance because I had all this like background with singing and opera and so I was I made some really bad performance pieces any of those on YouTube no there's no (laughs) see we're we're, we're so lucky we are very lucky because no one wants to see well actually like now i could fondly see like me in drag for the first and only time in like a cheap black bob wig on a giant in a giant bird cage that i had welded on a swing like in a really cheap gap shift dress like masturbating with a bloody hand while a naked <laughs> oh, guy man. laid underneath me with a boa and then it was to Serge Gainsbourg, Je t'aime mon amplu. It was like the most bananas thing. You didn't, and you didn't start subtle. You went no, full on. Full camp. Because full, I was seeing a lot of drag. I was like going to a lot of drag in the East Village. And like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that just seemed like, well, if you're going to be a queer performer, like you should experiment with gender. And like, why not? So yeah. I, I did. And oh, man, I got to perform that at CBGB's. Like wow. they had a gallery for a little bit, yeah, yeah, and like I got the asked in in between when the mm-hmm. club closed, yeah, and, uh, 
And I, when Barbados I, opened it back up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this was like 1996. That was my first show in New York. This It was called The Sick Shit Show 3. <laughs> that was was the f- it the third? Yeah, that was the first group show I'd ever been in. And uh, I still, you know, like I look at a lot of CVs because I run a residency and stuff and people, you know, it's always like select exhibitions. Mm-hmm. I always put that one online because I'm oh, like, yeah. <laughs> just title alone. I mean, you got to start somewhere, yeah, right? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm proud of it. Um, and it was like really insane. <laughs> and so that's like, that was the beginning. But maybe me. it does live best <laughs> in memory. Not on YouTube. There's one photograph in this shoebox of me in that outfit. And I, every few years, I, I'm like cleaning and I see it. And I'm just like, wow, no one's going to ever see this. <laughs> <laughs> Not kids these days. Everything's online. Yeah. Cataloged forever. Oof, I know. <laughs> so you started making more work when you got studio access at NYU. Yeah. And, and then you were influenced by all this working with... Todd and seeing all that stuff. I was going to the store every day, burning incense, like listening. To, I got like my whole queer education, like by like the guys that work there and they would play all these like, you know, Dusty Springfield, Batula Clark, Tina Turner, like basically like everything, you the, like all, all of the knowledge they had. Mm-hmm. And then I was listening to my music and I was listening to like Leonard Cohen. I was like a real mopey. I was like listening to like a lot of Leonard Cohen, <laughs> a lot of early Bob Dylan, uh, Tori, um, man, yeah. I mean, that's college, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You got, but f- they had the classics. Nina Simone, yeah. But because I liked a lot of the stuff that was borderline classic, like Nina Simone, like they like took me in right away and mm-hmm. like really schooled me. So it was, it was amazing. I would have thought that story's playing like Air and like Jazzanova. We had stuff like that too, yeah, yeah. But like, we were really selfish. Like, and actually, Todd was so sweet. He would like let us just like create the atmosphere. That's he just cool. put a lot of trust in us to do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, this woman who was one of the managers, she like couldn't stand all the mopey shit and she'd always want to listen to Prince. And I actually like never really got into Prince. I mean, Diamonds and Pearls might be my wedding song in a year when I get married, but it's n- he's not my go to. Yeah, I see. I never listened to a lot of Prince growing up, but I've really grown to love him fairly recently like yeah. in the last 10 years or yeah something. I mean I've seen Maceo Parker in concert like a couple times because I had a boyfriend who was really into that kind of mm-hmm. music and it's a lot of fun to see live I love it but I don't know it's just I guess like it's it's yeah it's never really spoken to me the way I think like real people who love that shit like yeah I've never had that that well, was that moment. that wasn't probably playing when you were younger right what was on in no. the house yeah what was on in the house like I mean like Dylan or no, you know, what's funny. Like my parents listen to a lot of show tunes. Like my dad loves the sound of music. And uh-huh. so like the sound of music was like always on in my house. Like I can recite it. <laughs> okay. So that's not Prince. <laughs> no, there's not like the low end. That's kind of Julie Andrews. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a different, that's a different tenor, you know? And I was like from very early on, like REM constantly REM. Yeah. yeah I mean, that kind of stuff was really, well, was all I was listening to. I went through like a metal phase, you know, it's all kind was... of downer music though. Right. <laughs> Even yeah. like the sound of music is kind of depressing. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like my dad's favorite song is Edelweiss, which is basically like a funerary march. Yeah. It's like a really sad, song. grim, yeah. <laughs> but beautiful. See, I grew up on Motown. Oh, okay. My dad was in the military, and okay. when he was stationed, like he he was really into Motown. Mm-hmm. So growing up, it was always like soul music or stuff that had that kind of backbone to it. I think, right. and to this day, that's the kind of music. Anything that has that. Rhythm and blues 
you know, underlying like structure to it. I love. Yeah. I like, I love a lot of that stuff too. My first boyfriend got me into a lot of Motown and a lot of soul music. Mm-hmm. I don't listen to it that much anymore, but when I hear it, I love it. And I, I know, connect to it, but yeah. I think it informed my sensibilities. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, like African American music in, in the fifties and sixties were, was incredible. Yeah. And I, I think that that's where I go to for yeah. like the foundation of what I want to listen to. So yeah. Maceo, I love Maceo. You know, I yeah. love the JBs. I yeah. love like the meters and stuff like that. And and then jazz and funk and all that stuff. Anyways, it gets, but it's, uh, that stuff is kind of uplifting. Yeah. For me, it's always been like female musicians. I would never call them divas. Like I don't think Joni Mitchell, Patti Smith, Nico, Nina Simone, like, they're not, they're not divas in like the typical gay lexicon mm-hmm. sense. But I think they're certainly like, sensitive artsy kid divas yeah you know and so i made work like i would i don't know if you've seen the older work that i made but like these album cover the kind of shrines yeah that's of the nina simone yeah. yeah and those are all yarn too so mm-hmm. like that was like a way to kind of like uh i guess like i wanted to make these homages to them like i've always been very like i went to catholic school for 12 years like the idea of like an altar mm-hmm. is so normal to me <laughs> that like familiar familiar right. familiar and like uh, like instinctual like that kind of um symmetry and hierarchy but it just always seemed like oh well if you really like something like this is how it's supposed to look mm-hmm. and it's in its most grandest form right like it's on an altar so mm-hmm. i think that those pieces were definitely you know part of that yeah part like a reflection on that time yeah so you were graduated and then was it was, it was always grad school at that point where I, I took keep a this couple going. years off. I took a couple years off. I uh, people that I really trusted were like, don't fucking go to grad school right away. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad I listened. I wish that I had like waited like six years, honestly, or longer. Cause I think I would have gotten more out of it. I think you get more out of it. The more experience you have, like the more, yeah. the more kind of tools in your toolbox that you come with, the more you get out of it. I mean, I'm a real chatty Kathy and I, I'm one of those people that, has to like not participate too much in crits because instinctually I never want to stop contributing mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad. I, I <laughs> like <laughs> in grad school, I was pretty rough on some people. Um, but I, you know, that's just like, I can't stand bullshit. Like if you really don't like something, say you don't like it, but don't say it's bad. Say like, I don't like it because for me, blah, 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 right. you know, because then you're exposing, you're just being as vulnerable as you've made them. I right. feel like that's the only way to give negative criticism is to like anchor it firmly in like your own aesthetic and be super honest that it's coming from that place. Mm-hmm. And I was like that. Um, and, and I didn't expect anyone to pull, hold back on me at NYU. I, at that time, the undergraduate program was going through a lot of changes good changes but it hadn't quite morphed into like you know there were hardly any female faculty hardly any faculty of color or queer faculty so mm-hmm. you know I didn't have really people were just like your work's great because <laughs> like you took a lot of time yeah to make it because labor was part of it um and I wanted to I wanted people to like really challenge me and yeah. I, I was fucking challenged so you I, needed that time <laughs> the time was good yeah I feel like that, that ba- I totally agree with you like I think if I went to, because I went right to grad school after mm-hmm. undergrad, and I think if I would have taken more time, I probably would have read the material deeper or probably been more better able to engage in critiques or, or interpersonal relationships, you know, because yeah. when you're younger, you just yeah. kind of like it's, you're a little bit dizzied by it all. And yeah. But I do think that 
if you wait too long, you start to like I I knew people in graduate school who were older who took a lot of time off and they it was kind of like a two year vacation from like regular mm, life. I can see that. And they were chilling and they were like right. you know they would go work at the studio but they were kind of like the maybe the energy wasn't quite there. Right. That makes sense. It's like the the thing I think about like with having kids. It's like you can have kids when you're twenty. And you're energetic and not every little thing they do is going to drive you crazy because as you get older, you know, it's like the Seinfeld right. thing where, like, <laughs> you know, oh, you're going to eat a, a, your peas with a fork one at a time. I'm over. No way. It's <laughs> happening. Like you, as you get older, you get more finicky about everything. Oh, totally. So you were able, I think younger, <laughs> as a younger student, you were able to, to roll with the punches. A little I bit. was, I was. And like, you know, but, you know, when you go to those grad programs that are like, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think anyone can say they don't fantasize about having more opportunities following that experience. Right, right. And when or if that doesn't happen, oh, man, because, I mean, I'm about to tell you, like, <laughs> it's really devastating. Like, yeah. it's really hard. I mean, oh, man, when I got out of grad school, oh, it, I just made some bad choices, like, one after the other, like both like in inter- like psychologically motivationally bad choices and like real bad choices, like in real life, like dating someone who was like may or may not been in the mob for two years. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, I was like so destabilized and so um, unsure of what to do next. Mm-hmm. You know, I could barely afford, I knew I needed to live by myself and I did that and I found a very cheap apartment, but like even a $950 apartment in 2004 is like, it was a lot for me just to like figure out how to do that. And, you know, so much of my work comes from this kind of domestic fantasy landscape um, that I I kind of think of as like a utopian kind of balanced, perfect, harmonious thing. Well, that was nothing like my real fucking life. So it was really hard to channel that in the work, you know, your escapism. Yeah. But I couldn't get there. Like it has to, I have to really feel it, you know, and I wasn't feeling it. I was like, so weird like I remember like being totally unable to make anything really good like for the first two years and all I really cared about was like buying this like kind of expensive decorative pillow from Toddle or from Jonathan Adler and like how that would somehow like make me happier and like I was like fixated on this pillow and like kind of a light bulb went off where I was like well if I don't same way with like video games same way with Toddle and like everything it's like well if something is taking my focus in this way and it seems trivial. Like I, I just kind of have to double down on it and mm-hmm. bring this thing into the studio and be like, why do I want, why am I looking at this small circular pillow? Like it's salvation, right? It obviously <laughs> so, means something to you. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, there was something so frivolous and easy and beautiful about it. And it was kind of like a sun. It was like radiating these embroideries and peacocky like, and I was just like, I'm going to make a giant mandala of this pillow. Mm-hmm. And, and it got me out of the hole. It really, really did. It got me out of the hole and it took me months to make. And it's still in my dining room wall. Like it's like a six foot diameter. It's like a pretty sizable thing. And I don't know, there was something so easy about making it and it was so satisfying. I still felt really guilty for making something that was just about a beautiful object, Mm -hmm. but it was, it was getting me off the couch. It was like getting me back into it. So I was just like, gotta go with this. 
And but that, it opened the door up. It, it did. Yeah. It did. And then the album cover pieces followed quickly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like that was like my adult life as an artist, like really started then. Were, we, were you doing that at home at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Just because I lived alone and my apartment was was cute. By that time, like I had gotten the pillow. I'd gotten several pillows and like my apartment looked like like I always loved when people would come to my apartment and be like, have you lived here 12 years? Like, <laughs> like, have you lived here for 20 years? And it's like, I just lived there for six months. But it felt settled in. Yeah. yeah. That's like a very important vibe for me. Like, and I think a lot of friends like to come over to my house, not because it's fancy, but just because it feels really comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really important for me to create those. Uh, even in my studio, I have like a living room set up. Mm-hmm. That's like my comfortable area. Yeah. The, that kind of relation to a domestic space and the comfort that it gives is like uh, really stimulating to me when I work. Yeah. I think everyone has their conditions. Yeah. Right. And some people like, like Gabriel Roscoe, like no studio, you right. know, like I've got to always be moving. Or right. Whatever, but, and some people have to have everything just so uh-huh. the right light or a great sound system, whatever it is. Yeah. Like I've know. never even had like a window like in my studio for like the last I don't know, like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And that was like an easy sacrifice for me. Whereas I can imagine most artists, it's like the thing they can't compromise on. Right. You know, I need some natural light. No. Well, for one thing I work with textiles. So it's like, it's just a hassle to like worry about things fading all the time. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's never been, I can control the atmosphere easier if I can control the lighting and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I kind of like no light in my studios. But I have one studio that has a lot of light and one that doesn't have any light. Right. It's just all my my light. I kind of prefer being able to control it. Yeah. But then I do some animations and projection, too. And if you have natural light, that becomes kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't really control it. No. And totally. It's, it's such a hassle. Like, the bigger and more luxurious the windows, the more, like, uh, infuriating it is to cover them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The more commitment it yeah. is. To, it's true. Yeah. So, so when did you do the residency at Fire Island? So I was uh, so after grad school, I bounced around some pretty heinous jobs, the worst of which was working for Peter Halley. Let's put that Um, on the record. (laughs) Oh, I have no problem putting that on the record, sir. Like, I've never felt in a more abusive situation for me and the people I worked with than when I worked for Peter Halley. I have a lot of respect for his work. I actually find it really chic and beautiful. Maybe that's not the best compliment he'd want to receive, but that's Mm -hmm. how I feel about it. Um, but he was a monster boss, you know, like yeah. the kind of boss that like you see like in like a, you know, like whenever they would show like an artist in the 80s living in New York on like a movie, it would always be like this eccentric lunatic character, like that rambling was a, and yelling at people. Yeah. But in like a luxurious, spacious, right. place, like, you know, a level of privilege co- accompanied by like complete uh, disregard for other people's feelings. Right. So that was sort of what it was like. And I didn't last long. And I had. I worked for Jim Hodges. That was like a dream job. He was amazing. I bounced around. I worked at a gallery. I worked at American Fine Arts um, with Colin DeLand during like kind of the last year of his life, which Mm -hmm. was really strange. I mean, I knew that that place was a legendary place. And was it still on Broadway then? At this point, at this point, he had taken over Pat Hearn's space on on, um, 22nd 22nd. Street. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was working there. We shared a bathroom with Sikama Jenkins. It was really funny. (laughs) And uh, after a year there, I, I knew I was going to apply to grad school. So I applied to grad school and I left. But yeah, um, yeah. I forget. What was the question? Well, when the Fire Island residency. Oh, was. so I had all these jobs. And then uh, I got rescued from Peter Halley 
by Lamont. I went to work at Lamont, which is like a high-end digital and photographic printing place. It's mm-hmm. where like, you know, Nan Golden works with a printer there. Like, I mean, it, it's a really cool place to work. In the city. Yeah. yeah. And I learned so much because I had been digitally printing on fabric for a while. So like I, I kind of had already started learning that craft, but mm-hmm. I really... You know, I worked there for like uh, six months and then all of a sudden NYU was like, um, we want you to come back and be the academic administrator for the department. I had like a reputation for being like very responsible. I think like they didn't quite understand that I'm like also a little bit like uh, ditzy and selfish. (laughs) But (laughs) nevertheless, I worked worked there for six years. I'm a cheerleader. So like wherever I am, I, I I don't like to work places that I'm not super enthusiastic about yeah and i loved that program and i loved that department and and i i gave them everything i could give them and for six years worked there one of the coolest things i got to do there was run these summer programs for high school students one of which was for you know more well-off students that would come and live in the dorms for two weeks every summer and like make art and like work on a portfolio prep a lot of these students were students that wanted to come to nyu they thought it would help them get in and it did yeah we would take the money from that program and then run a second program that was a month long, twice as long, for 15 New York City public school kids that showed need and merit. Mm-hmm. So, and that was, you know, the program was started by grad students the year before I got there. Uh, Jonathan Berger, who's an incredible artist and curator, had started it. But it was sort of handed over to me. And part of what I would do is, is I would go to these arts high schools like Frank Sinatra or Edward R. Murrow, and I would meet with the art teachers and meet the students, and I would say, like, all right, who's like giving like who's really not doing well like maybe they were not going to graduate but like has a lot of skill and a lot of talent like who needs this the most because a lot of those kids are incredible and get a lot of opportunities and I would try to look for the ones that really needed it and so we would take them for a month it was it was an intensive portfolio prep they would take classes in every discipline and then we'd have a show and I would invite um recruiters from top art schools a lot of these students were students of color were queer students um i would get students from the hedrick martin school and so typically like a third of them would get like really fancy offers you know to colleges and transformative for them mm -hmm, sure mm -hmm. it felt great it felt amazing and it's weird like some of my students uh that i had then are like famous fashion like one of them's a famous fashion designer and it's like like he's like really doing well (laughs) and so it feels good it felt good to do that it felt good to be a part of someone else's education because at that point I wasn't really allowed to adjunct and so this was like the only way to like I guess wield any pedagogical power that I might want so and it was really satisfying and it was around that time that I had started going to Fire Island Mm -hmm. and the I had resisted going for years because uh it just seemed like they weren't going to play a lot of Leonard Cohen. It was going to be like, <laughs> it was going to see that coming. <laughs> it was going to be like a different kind of queer experience that like I had been hiding and running from like my entire time in New York city. Mm-hmm. Like I hung out at like the boiler room where like the jukebox had like the velvet underground and Bowie and like yeah. definitely like more of an alternative queer scene. And the conventional kind of Chelsea at the time, now you'd call it the hell's kitchen scene. No way. Like, not for me. Like, I remember the first time I went out dancing, like, my freshman year of school and with some friends. And, like, at a certain time, like, around, like, dick o'clock, everyone, like, takes their shirt off. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, fuck no. I gotta this get. is not for me. I was like, <laughs> first of all, I'm not attracted to anyone here. Like, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, I like chubby guys. So, mm-hmm. like, 
that was it was just never gonna I was never gonna meet anyone it wasn't like a sexy time for me because I was like all right I feel totally inadequate and I'm not attracted to anyone Mm -hmm. so like my motivation to like assimilate is like zero negative that's (laughs) just not your niche no but I couldn't I didn't know that there was a bear scene I didn't know what any of that was till I had Nalen Blake as my teacher (laughs) (laughs) and then he was like let me tell you something and like so that was like really important too but back to fire fire island artist residency it was all those experiences being an administrator at nyu but also feeling like it wasn't it wasn't like for me like i couldn't be my own boss i couldn't control um the direction things could ultimately go in and and there was no room to really go ahead so Mm -hmm. i i i went out to fire island reluctantly because this guy who had invited me was really cute um and we got off the boat in cherry grove and I was like, this doesn't look like the back page of all the gay rags that I was reading in the bars. Like this is a like that dock is like full of like people of every color, every gender expression, their pets, almost all like I would say like 50 percent seniors. Like mm-hmm. it didn't seem like I was like, what is this? It was and it was kind of like broke down and like funky in a way that I was like, oh, I like this, you know, and like I remember we got there kind of like late. And we kind of hung out at the house, which was this little shack on the last walk before the woods between the pines and Cherry Grove that's called the Meat Rack. We were like right on the edge of it. And it just seemed so amazing. Like, here's this queer space. Like, you know, it's it's a lot different than a bar because it's like the natural landscape becomes queer. Mm-hmm. And I'd never experienced that before. I think most gay people don't get to experience it. So I, I felt special. I woke up the next morning and I went out there with my dog in my boxers just to let her pee. And like all these dudes were out there and women and they were like, here's a paintbrush, paint the walk morning. And I was like, what? I was like, let me tell my friend who brought me like, and he's like, no, no, just, just like start taping off a stripe. They paint white stripes on the side of the boardwalk there. Yeah. So that at night when you're coming home, like drunk, you can like not, you don't fall. You know where the edge is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's why they do it. It's I'm pretty responsible. sure. And so it's up to like the homeowners and renters really to do it. Yeah. And so I did it. And as I was doing it, a couple old timers like took an interest in me. And I had, I had said like, it's my first morning ever in Cherry Grove. Like this place seems amazing. And they're like, well, let me tell you why. And like, they gave me so much amazing history mm-hmm. uh, to that place. And I remember in that very moment thinking like, why isn't there a gay artist residency here? Like, why isn't there a queer artist residency here? And I, you know, I know the answer is because AIDS, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like all those artists that would have done it yeah. died. And then the ones that survived, look at that place like it's like an open grave. You know, I mean, that island is like so fraught with so many difficult memories for so many people that right. are a little older than me. And it made perfect sense. But I was like, wow, that would be amazing. Cut to three years later, I'm, I now have a share. I go out there every summer. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't go to, I like don't go to high tea or low tea or do any of the dances. I'm like smoke weed and listen to Leonard Cohen in my beach house. <laughs> Although at this point it's more like other music too, but um, like I love the breeders. I love the breeders at the beach. That's oh, like yeah. a really good. I was just listening to them yesterday. Oh, the new record is perfect. Yeah, they're out. They're back. Did you That's listen great. to the podcast she did with Mark Maron? Uh huh. Yeah, it was I really did. good. It was really good. It was really funny. Yeah, and like growing up at that time, I mean, you know, the, the yeah. Breeders were big. Oh, they were. They've been my favorite like living band. Like the Velvet Underground was like my favorite band for yeah. like, forever. But like they didn't exist anymore by the right. time I was listening to them. The you Breeders see them play, yeah. have always been like my favorite living band. Um, man, that Kim Deal, man, she's just like no one like her. 
No one like her. Yeah, the the sound of those records. That voice is like the voice of truth yeah. in my ear. Yeah. And so and it's confusing and poetic and doesn't always make sense. And I feel like that's what's so true about it. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had this fantasy and so I brought out a friend of mine, uh, this curator Evan Garza, and I had told him like his first morning there, I was like, let me tell you what happened my first morning. And I, and I somehow like took that dream out of my dream drawer and like showed it to him, mm-hmm. you know, the residency dream. And he, you know, he's like one of those people that like, just, I feel like can do anything or at least like thinks he can do anything. And yeah. like, I, and I mean that in the most positive sense. And he was just like, why can't we do that? And I was like, well, for one thing, like nobody gives a shit about us. <laughs> like we're like, I'm like a barely emerging artist and you're a barely emerging curator. Like, I don't know what we could possibly do to raise money and do this. And then I told my boyfriend about it, who I just started dating. And he was like, I want to help you do this. And I was like, you really don't. I was like, are you, are you sure? And he's like a very organized person. He like works for a major bank and like, mm-hmm. he's just like a, like a walking spreadsheet of love. Good you people know? to have around <laughs> yeah. when you're trying to start a new initiative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was really like Evan's motivation and Rod's practical uh thinking and and action that like encouraged me to like take six thousand dollars out of my savings and like rent a beach house for two weeks that could have five artists in it Mm -hmm. and like evan and i like brainstormed about the vision and we did an open call on facebook like and naively i thought i was going to have to ask people to participate the first year like are we going in we're like this is a pilot let's document it and then we'll make a website and then it'll get real. You underestimated the desire for residencies out there. I sure did. Especially <laughs> for a residency like this that served a population that like never had it. Underserved, so, yeah. Um, we put the ad on Facebook. Word got out. We I called like people from Yale and like, cause that's where I would gone to grad school. And mm-hmm. like, I, uh, we reached out to a couple other graduate programs mm-hmm. and um, told a few, like Bill Arning, who's a curator, told him and, Within two weeks. So like we posted it and then the deadline to apply was like two weeks away. And we got 75 applications in two weeks. Nice. From barely even trying. Yeah. With no website. This did barely like in in today's world, like that means you don't exist. Right. Right. So like we didn't even exist and we got 75 applications for like this, this hypothetical situation. (laughs) And we, the house was called hard times. All the houses out there are named. (laughs) And they all have like double entendres. So this was hard times. Right. Well, like the ceiling leaked and the back porch like sloped and the whole house was like kind of a wreck. Leonard Cohen on 24 seven. No, I mean, I let the residents play with whatever they wanted (laughs) to play. It was just playing all the time. Yeah. Hard times. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Suzanne. Yeah. (laughs) So like, I remember the inaugural group included people like AK Burns and Katie Hubbard and Elijah Berger and Travis Boyer. Um, you know, these people who are like now like, uh, like everyone knows who they are. And like, this was like, uh, like a weird experiment. And Evan and I stayed in the house too, in one of the bedrooms, like sharing a bed. Mm -hmm. And then on when we had visiting artists come, we basically had to like go and try and like trick, which for your, straight listeners means like hook up for the night with mm-hmm. people so we wouldn't have to come back so that the visiting artists could think they have their own room when in fact it was our room that we just like vacated but this, would, this is in the summer right yeah yeah you can just sleep on the beach 
No, you know, that's how people die. Oh, because they come and comb the sand. <laughs> yeah. Overnight? Who's the famous poet, actually? Um, I'm blanking on the name, which really embarrasses me. But he was. Uh, fuck. We'll just edit that in, please. Yeah. So like this very famous poet died that way. And so Frank Frank O'Hara. OK. Yeah. So you don't want to do that. Um, I didn't know he died that way. Yeah. But he di- but he I think he got run over by a dune buggy. Yeah. I know. Horrible. The grim end. <laughs> I, know. I know. Sorry, so, I'm not laughing. At no, that. I mean it's just absurd. It's yeah. absurd. So, and actually, for like the first five years, we would go out and read po- his poems on the night of the anniversary of his death because mm-hmm. it was when usually it was like one of the first couple days of the residency. Right. And one time, like uh, Justin Bond was there and came out with us. I mean, it was it was cool. Yeah, we love to honor Frank. And what year did it start? 2011. 11. Yeah, this will be our eighth summer coming up. That's great. And so you've gotten. Much more. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's I mean, grown. it's grown. I mean, hundreds of applications come in every year and um, the jurying gets more and more laborious. And I have to pull more and more favors to get jurors because it's a lot to look through. Um, Is it still in hard times? No, hard times. <laughs> no, we couldn't. Grown. We couldn't stay there. That was like that was a two week experiment. And then we wound up moving into this house called um, uh, Holly House which was a former boarding house in the center of town, really close to everything. And very, mm-hmm. It was very loud. It was like a real rundown, but very big kind of rickety structure. And we rented the whole first floor, which was great because it had enough bedrooms for everyone to have mm-hmm. a bedroom. It was two living rooms, wraparound deck, lots of space to make work. Because, um, I mean, these rented beach houses become live-work situations. Yeah. Um, and then we were smart enough at that point to get a separate staff apartment so that it wouldn't be like all of us living on top of each other right. um, nearby. But Holly House, after two summers, uh, in the springtime, right before we were about to go out there again, like caught on fire and burnt down and like took out like two other giant properties oh. and the hotel. <laughs> Hard times. <laughs> yeah. And like <laughs> our archive was stored there. All oh. of our supplies were there. It was really devastating. Yeah. Um, that place was so inexpensive. The next thing up was like double our budget and it really fucked us. Like, I mean, Paddle 8 came to our rescue and like helped us do an auction and like, ex- like really promoted the hell out of it. And we were able to like make that summer still happen. Yeah. But I mean, I remember getting a call at like seven in the morning from like Brian Boucher, the journalist and being like, so Fire Island, Fire Island Arsenal, you burnt to the ground. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like mm-hmm. I didn't even oh, know really? It yeah. happened in the middle of the night Oh geez. And I was like we're still gonna go We're still doing it and then I just like hung up the phone And I like I was still like laying in bed naked And I was just like what, what do I do What, yeah. do, I do? what do I do Like my board is gonna start like I have to like Answer these questions like today like within The next two hours fundraising Like if we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I got to somehow figure it out. And, you know, it's a board made up of people who really care about the organization, but like maybe don't have the time to like or or the experience to do like a ton of fundraising. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a lot of experience either. So it was just like a real like that's when I realized like this is uh, a job. Yeah. And it's a job that I don't really pay myself very often for. Like, I mean, I, ha- I have a quote unquote salary that I pay myself, but mm-hmm. oftentimes I just donate it because we, we don't have it. Yeah. And so after a few years, I was like, all right, I'm making these like intense financial sacrifices for this organization that Evan had moved on at this point to take a job in, in Texas to be a curator and has done amazing things since. But my partner and I were just like, 
like this isn't financially stable in any way, but I knew that it, I basically had to say like, this is part of my studio practice. This mm-hmm. is a part of my practice as an artist, as unconventional as it sounds to run a nonprofit. Like it's not like activism on like the side. It's like a full on 501c3 nonprofit that I spend half my time on in my studio sitting there next to the work that I'm then going to go make physical work with. And it took a long time, I think, for me to even accept that. And then it took even longer for, I think, people in the art world to understand that. Not that I'm like running around doing a great job, like explaining it, but it was like, I think this, um, uh, Annalise, uh, from PPOW, she was the, like the first person to come up to me and be like, I know I've been following you, your work and the residency. And like, that actually was when it clicked. I'm like, Oh, like I'm that I'm both those things. Yeah. And that's okay to be both those things. Right. I just don't like have a model to like, I don't know very many artists that like that's their practice is this weird dual thing. Yeah. I think more so these days than before, more people are involved in curating and I think so. Yeah. And doing other things and not just being yeah. like, I'm defined by the one thing that I do and I can't really sully that or water right. it down. Right. I mean, AK Burns like is a great example. Like uh, I think AK was one of the founders of wage, which is like mm-hmm. an incredible Organization, So, I mean, I, I do see that it happening more and more, but sometimes it feels crazy. I'm like, I really just want to make shit. Like, why do I have to, like, run, yeah. write to all these donors? Or, like, why do I have to send out this newsletter? Like, those right. things are, like, sometimes agonizing. But I get so much pleasure out of feeling that I'm contributing and creating community. Like, oh, yeah. That I felt always very bad at in the conventional kind of marketing yourself at an opening. Like, yeah. Like, I could go into a singles bear bar and, like, get rejected ten times until I, like, met someone and hooked up. And, like, that never felt stressful because it was just, like, whatever. Like, I have nothing at stake here. Yeah. Like, if I don't get laid tonight, it doesn't – it's not – like, I didn't – I never, like, internalized that as, like, that negative. Yeah. But it, professionally, I put an insane amount of pressure on myself. And, like, it's not normal or good. I mean, it probably is normal, but, like – it's not something like I love about it's not myself. Productive. It's not productive. Right. And it wasn't until the residency actually that I was able to go into those situations and be like, Oh, I can hobnob and talk cause I'm promoting this thing that helps other people. It felt like way less smarmy, I guess, than like self promoting. Yeah. 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 Well, it feels good too to, yeah. to be championing other people. And then each year yeah. I think about all that community just keeps growing and it growing. keeps growing. And right now it's like, if there's five people every summer and we've done it seven times, it's like 35 people out there mm-hmm. who, like for the most part felt really awesome and, and gratified by the experience. I mean, we had one resident, um, Baberia Leila who came from Uganda. She had been outed by a local tabloid like a month before applying. And she only applied because a journalist from the States like knew about fire and like happened to be there covering the gay scene and met her. Mm-hmm. I mean, long story short, she never went back and just got her asylum all cleared like a month ago. And this was like years ago that she did the residency. And like, I don't want to take, I'm not taking credit for that experience, but getting to know that you got to play a part in someone's journey like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think every queer in the United States, like now that we have marriage has kind of thought like, okay, but like there's still people like dying because Mm -hmm. they're gay. Yeah. And like, what can I do to help those people in other countries? And for the most part, there's not much we can do. You know, but I was it felt awesome to be able to, like, get to do something, you know. Yeah. In in doing something that's 
intrinsic and like something that you do and that you are passionate about. Yeah. Not just like, okay, what can I do on the side to like save some people somewhere else? Right. It's like, this is really meaningful and kind of like first person. Yeah. And that must feel really good too. It to feels awesome. And I also like, I haven't talked much about the Cherry Grove Fire Island community, but I think it was cool to be able to bring someone like that. You know, it's a very senior community, especially during the weeks, the weekdays in the summer when it's not party town. And like those folks came there in the fifties because it was like the only place they could go and be safe and be open. Yeah. And for when they met Babiria, it was like, here's someone in real time in the present who's experiencing it at the same in the same exact profound way that they did. And man, I could have never anticipated like how, how, how it brought everyone together, Mm -hmm. like whether they liked art or not, or wanted to go to an art lecture for free or not. Like they wanted to help this person, you know, and like support this person. And it was, it was awesome because I think it reminded a lot of people out there, like what that place historically is, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Which was always a goal for the residency, kind of to honor that. Right. And it happened. So that that's, was cool. It's great. Well, yeah. let's also talk about your work. Yeah. Spring Break was great. Oh, I mean, thank I, you. I just <laughs> happened to be, I was performing with my friend, Rudy Shepard. We were doing a performance and then I was. You're wandering around. Wandering around. And that, <laughs> what a gauntlet kind of like odd maze that it's a great energy and it's i'm embarrassed great. to say i didn't even see anything like i go every you year were, you were stuck or not stuck but yeah, well I mean, my were. curator danny orendorf um and i like kind of split our time up so yeah. that we wouldn't have to be there all the time at the same time but that meant really not getting to leave because right. i don't really like people touching the work because a lot of it's just balancing and yeah. so you really got to be there yeah and so and also like it felt rad to have people walk in the room and be like i right. love this work it's so beautiful it's like who doesn't want to fucking hear that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize that some of the people there are artists. You right. know what I mean? Which right. is nice, too, because then you get the fly on the wall thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. True. Yeah, a lot of times people wouldn't even ask me until, like, right when they were leaving the room after, like, having this conversation. Well, it was funny because I think a lot of people would see the work. And I heard this very many times. And they would be like, they would just assume a woman made it. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't. they would just look at me and be like, well, that's obviously the curator. He didn't make this. <laughs> well, one woman, she had kind of an Eastern European accent, and she was like, you made this? And I was like, yeah. She's like, no, a woman made this work. And I was like, oh, it's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I actually did make the work. Yeah. And she was and she was just like, still like, no, this is the work of a woman's hand. And I was like, well, my hands are very small. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, a couple have... people like, like really were like, it is impossible that a man could make this work or bringing it to that conversation about like a man doing women's work. And like, honestly, like it's so boring to me. Like yeah. that show happened like 15 years ago, 20 say, years ago. Like, a little dated at this point. I'm just making what I like. Hey, that's the beauty of <laughs> right. that's the beauty of making art is you're still going to it's what 2018. Yeah. If you're around at, at a show that you're having or someone comes to your studio, there'll still be someone who's like, "Did you really paint?" Or like, <laughs> you know, those questions of like, yeah. "Is this art?" or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. Of course, gonna, no. It's 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 and like that's like a funny question. Like, it's like, you know. To not understand that, like, a queer person might be interested in those materials. And if, for me, it's never been strategic or intentional. It's just, like, that's what I'm into. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's this there's this through line of a lot of queer artists, like, using these kinds of materials. But, like, I don't think what people, what people misunderstand is that it's not... 
it's not a strategy to like make like satisfy a thesis. It's just a natural affinity. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and there's plenty of straight artists who use those materials. Of to, course. In, uh, in, of course. That, yeah. It's, yeah. It doesn't define <laughs> you as a person, like the materials that you're using. No. But no. there is the antiquated notion of, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, I go to Marshall's. I mean, not Marshall. Yeah. Michael's. I, uh, Michael's. Yeah. I go to Michael's for foam brushes and <laughs> like, you know, materials and stuff like that. And, you know, people like look at you. Well, you're in here. Well, that's interesting because I always make this joke that I'm like the only adult male in Michael's at like 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, <laughs> which a lot of times on Northern Boulevard. And like, oh, it's yeah, not a joke. Like, I really am. Yeah. <laughs> right. In that whole giant store. Yeah. And it's just, it, it makes me it, I always kind of laugh to myself. I think it's kind of I'm like, what a weird job I have. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like literally swimming upstream in like reality. Like sometimes I feel like that. Yeah. (laughs) It's a nice feeling to have. You feel like alive. Yeah. Yeah. Not like you're just plugged into some sort of equation that's predetermined. Yes, it's true. It's true. It's very freeing, but also like kind of boundless in a scary way too. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So you're currently in the Queens museum. Yes, I am. Uh, in the second year of a two-year residency at the Queens Museum, it's the most luxurious, wonderful thing that's ever happened to me as an, a grown-up artist. Um, I liken it to like the same kind of feeling I had when I found out I got into like my top grad school choice. But like, unlike that, this actually is like a utopian <laughs> fantasy. Yeah, that's not <laughs> <laughs> the reality of a of a competitive grad school program. Is like you're probably gonna cry. Right. Like. Sometimes this is not like that. This is literally like every day I drive my car that I got a license to for this purpose to go to the museum. And it's just uh, it's just amazing. I mean, the space is is beautiful and large. And the knowing that you have institutional support, even if you don't have like market support or like market success, like Mm -hmm. it kind of takes away all the anxiety of that because you can whenever you're feeling a little down, you can be like, but I have this rad studio that this museum is like giving me for Mm -hmm. two years. Like this, they believe in me. And so that's, it's been like a force field of like, you know, that typical artistic self doubt that like it's inevitable, but like, God, I've been like navigating around it via this opportunity. I mean, and then it's, it's allowed me to scale my work up in a way that I really wanted to and just like, couldn't figure out how in my smaller studio that I had before. Yeah. You know, and that's really when I think people started to like get the whole picture of what my practice is. Like it took those larger works to kind of stop people and make them really take it seriously. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I haven't we haven't talked about the specifics of your work, I guess, necessarily. But I feel like we talked about what your work is through you and your experiences. Yeah. I guess sometimes people are like, why are you talking about artwork more? Well, we can. But I mean, no one listening can see it. That's part of it. I feel like you have to go how, see it. How compelling is that going to be? Right. I mean, what? Uh, what but I do love the drawing. Yeah. I did want to mention the drawings are really nice. I love that you do the drawings for. I mean, do you do it for most of the all, all of my yeah. work? So they start as the starts sketches. as drawings. Yeah, all of it starts as very as ideas in my head. That at a certain point, I'll sit down in the studio and like do very quick rough sketches just so I remember things. Although usually when I have a good idea, like I never forget it, like until I execute it. Yeah. Um, and then those drawings, 
you know, I don't put a lot of pressure on myself to, although I do work in, in sequential series is I'll oftentimes just go in there and like draw the weirdest thing, mm-hmm. like a, like a paper bag full of dicks mm-hmm. with a smiley face. And like <laughs> sometimes, and like, and you know, you laugh and I laugh too, but like, you're going to see a big yarn paper bag with, smi- with dicks in it at some point, like it will happen, right. but like, it's not ready, but everything starts out as a drawing, mm-hmm. usually very flat, non-dimensional, drawing and I, I that all goes back to talking about video games and those flat that flatness yeah um and if something's really speaking to me and I'm still looking at it and still thinking about it then I start to consider like well what other materials could this be executed in or what scale or what what dimension that would make it even stronger or sort of like make the thing that's so wonderful about it to me like easier to access for other people you know, yeah. and and like I, I feel like I try to be very generous as an artist. Like I try to make things that people want to look at. Mm-hmm. And I have a pretty good sense of contemporary style and design. And I use those strategies to sedu- to make things that I think are uh, going to be seductive to like a lot of people. Yeah. Um, because those are the things I want to look at. Right. Pleasurable to look at. Yeah. Draw you in. And there's always something darker, sadder, more challenging there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it wouldn't be interesting for me. But like that stuff, I don't want to lead with that because, yeah. you know, because I, I always like when those things reveal themselves in artworks slower anyway. You're preaching to the choir. That's right. my whole thing. <laughs> lower them in with uh, something that's yeah. seductive and then the undertones are... Yeah, you can creep them out like, exactly subtly underneath. Exactly, and so the series of drawings that birthed a lot of the work in Spring Break, uh, I called it Plants vs. Zombies, and they're these archways and portals um, that have like these botanical elements, bowls of fruit, things that like very easily anchor a domestic space. Even yeah. I, I, you don't have to show too much more other than like a geometric plant and a planter and a bowl of fruit and a table to know that like, okay, we're in a domestic setting. People are living right near this place. Yeah. And I, you know, they're very balanced. Um, I'm a Libra, you know, I don't know if that's <laughs> why, but like I, I gravitate towards those kind of harmonious, um, uh, I always forget this word, the word when you arrange things in space, what is that word? Arranging things in space, you know, like every uh, composition. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Composition. Okay. Like I, that's one of those words that's like so hard for me. I didn't know if you meant literally. Place no, c- composition. Oh. Like, I think that's something that I actually do really well, even though I always forget the word. But uh, it's something that I take a lot of pleasure mm-hmm. in doing. And that visual pleasure, I like to definitely translate into the, the viewer's experience. But then I put something in there that's organic, that's like a little floppy off balance. And that's these like kind of disembodied arms and hands and heads. Mm-hmm. And like, they're really there to add feeling or emotion or, or take the viewer somewhere like less stabilized. Mm-hmm. I still add them in a way that complements the composition, but you can see that things are about to teeter. Like that hand is about to crush that plant or like tear off one of the vines or, you know, spill the bowl of fruit. And in some of the drawings you see that actually ha- that has just happened and you see like, the aftermath yeah but i like the ones best where it's just about to happen like these feel so there's such an unease to the way things right it's just a feather drop away from it all like well you know 
imploding. Right. I mean, in the sculptures, it's really these heavy things that are like human scale, like the size of a bookcase balancing um, untethered that, you know, it can be very harmonious. I mean, I want it. I want those compositions to feel like joyous sometimes or, or at least um, satisfying to look at. But then, like, you know, like if you were to molest it at all, like it could all fall apart. Yeah. And I think. I don't know. I mean, my elevator speech that I like, you know, I always doubt that stuff more and more every day. But I do think about like how we try to make these perfect environments um, in our domestic spaces. I mean, for me, I'm like obsessed with it. I don't expect everyone does this. But like even if you just have like a few little objects on your windowsill that you like looking at, Mm -hmm. even if it's just a pebble, you know, like that kind of comfort or like need to create comfort for yourself and balance is is pretty universal i think yeah and i think it's a way a lot of people can uh enter the work but you know no matter how perfect an environment even if it looks just like that west elm catalog like you know what's not in that west elm catalog picture is a person yeah (laughs) right people go in those spaces and people aren't perfect and they you know I'm not saying someone's going to walk in and knock over the table like Teresa Judice, but like the cat will, (laughs) the cat will, (laughs) but like you could emotionally wreck everything. Yeah. You know? And, and I think that, you know, for my own self, I struggle with, uh, like wanting like to further my career as an artist and like struggle with like how to get more people noticing my work or like, you know, everybody has a goal. Right. And it's like, that's my current goal. But like, you know, but then you're also, you get lazy and you get tired and you just want to rest. And it's like that push and pull, like where your rest is never quite restful is like a state that I've found myself in for quite some time. And I definitely think that that comes through in those drawings. Yeah. And there's, I love this idea too of, um, we have this innate desire to order everything, but the universe and our lives are totally, you know, random. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but we'll put a grid on everything uh-huh. for stability. And, yeah. And just, you know, and there's something like beautiful about that and mm-hmm. tragic about it at the mm-hmm. same time. <laughs> yeah. Like when you see an anthill and it's like, you know, really high up and they spent like a long time building this thing. Yeah. And you know, it's like raining in an hour and it's going to destroy all that. I know. But it's, it's wonderful, <laughs> but it's, and it's also Sisyphean sad. tasks. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think we, we do that in our homes. We do that in our lives in so many different ways. And, you know, it's like everything. And I think the drawings, especially, but you know, the sculpture, like there's that feeling of like fragility. Yeah. That is so like it's, meaningful. I think it's life. irresistible. I yeah. think the more beautiful something, is, I feel like, like beauty is on like this, like Venn diagram related to fragility. And it's like the more fragile something is, the more it has a potential to excite and be beautiful to yeah. us. And like, at what point, like, do those things become like terminally like unsafe, you know? And, and I think like I'm interested in exploring something on that diagram. Like I think the work is definitely somewhere there. Well, it's not that far from like, uh, bungee jumping or something too Oof, which i would never do because yeah. life is so fragile and you're like you know what <laughs> right i'll put this rope right on right and right jump do something i would never do for yeah. that rush yeah for that feeling of like oh i could have died yeah yeah which that's i think it's human nature yeah like if people watch like a train wreck you can't not look at it because of the fragility of life and, uh-huh you know and it's just it's intoxicating it, or like it does something <laughs> like chemically to people to where they yeah. You feel most alive. Yeah. When yeah. things are about to fall apart. Yeah. 
So I, I, that that you get that in your work, I think, is really powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's something that I think most of the people, like it was funny listening to people's reactions as they would walk into the room at spring break and everyone's, most people's first reaction is like, these are beautiful. And like, that's great because that's exactly what I'm aiming for. Like mm-hmm. some artists would be like, oh, I really don't want to hear something that bland. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm like, great. I know that we've like got them on the on the string, you know? Yeah. And then they're like, what's with these weird hands? And I'm like, perfect like it's cool to see like people react to your work the way you react to your work Mm -hmm. which of course like you know is not something we all start out doing right like we in art school it's like you're learning how to make the thing like your motivation be the the viewer's experience Mm -hmm. i think you know yeah and at a certain point you like just have to stop caring and i feel like that's when it actually happens (laughs) like when you're like way way less calculated about it you know and i'm like at this point like i've never really read theory and i've never you know read a lot of art criticism i'm excited about the new direction of art forum but you know like it's you know my one year subscription that i had was like so uh it was embarrassing for myself because it's like this is a big magazine like i never want to look at yeah (laughs) that i feel like i should have right you know and i I, I no longer feel any hangups about that. Like you reach a certain age and you have a certain distance from your educational experiences. And if you're still in the game at that point, mm-hmm. you're doing it purely out of like love and passion. And I feel like, I mean, I would hope so. And I, I think like at that point things can get a lot more pure and like yeah. less, uh, strategic. Yeah, exactly. It's more intuitive. And, yeah, and exactly. More exactly. And you, response. And you learn, you know, that the weirdest things that you like were afraid to do are always like the things that are the most interesting to other people, you know? And like for someone who's really interested in decorative art, like that was a very scary diving board to jump off of. Because I was like, I'm so afraid people are going to think that I have like nothing rattling around in my head and then I'm a fucking idiot, like a superficial Mm -hmm. surface. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and surfaces are like the most important thing to me mm-hmm. in my work. And so I, I had to be like, well, I'm, I had a studio visit with uh, Jay Gorney, who's on the board of the Fire Island Artist Residency. And it wasn't even a studio visit. It was like he was coming to my studio to like talk about uh, like some fundraising. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to ask him to look at the work. But I mean, the dude is like, that's what he does. He works there. So. And I shared that that um, that kind of guilty uh, doubt that I had in my head and he was just like, no way. Like if you, all you want to do is make pretty mandalas, then like you got to double down. And Mm -hmm. I have like, it really was like he left and I was like, God, no one has ever given me permission to like explore beauty and interior design and all these things at the, at the purest level that I've always been interested in them. And I just started doing it. And like, that's when I got the Queens museum and like the past two years have been like so freeing because I don't, feel like I need to explain anything to anybody and I mean I enjoy talking about my work to people but I don't feel that responsibility like I have to somehow rationalize like why I'm right. doing these very traditionally beautiful things right you know you just you gotta do what what makes you tick also the world right? sucks right now or at least our you know things politically are such a downer that like listen we're not going there we'll be here for another yeah but like making beautiful things feels like a fucking important thing right now and it actually feels like politically important to make work that's like not purposely like 
not engaging that, like you're not letting it sully your natural affinities. Like I believe that every artist, every person should have uh, some or amount of uh, resistance and activism in their life right now. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for me, I run a nonprofit that is that already, and so I don't feel any pressure to do that. In fact, it's allowed me to be so much more indulgent in the studio than I would ever. Like people often ask me, like, how has the residency like changed your work? And I'm always thinking what they mean is like looking at all these people's work. Does that influence you? And like, not really. I mean, I like looking at all these applications because it gives me an interesting like flash view of like what emerging queer art looks like. I mean, I feel like I really know. And um, and then I always try to make something that's not like any of that. (laughs) I don't it has to like I have to challenge myself to actually like still make something completely different and the closer you get to your own socialization and subculture the harder that is to do right um but i feel really good about it yeah you know so it really it's just given me the freedom to like jump off the diving board and and embrace all of those kinds of uh instincts that i think professionals like interior designers and hairdressers and fashion designers all the things they do that they get rewarded for are like the things that if you employ in your studio like you run the risk of like being told you're like making decorative art. Right. But decorative art's the most interesting art to me. Yeah. So like, I just have to double down. Yeah. <laughs> Cannonball off that diving exactly. board. Exactly. Just go in. I know. Like I have this fast. perverse fantasy of like, well, what if I did like mass produce something? Like, I don't know if I would enjoy that. Like that process could be really horrible, but I've been wanting to see what my work would look like on a roll of fabric. Mm-hmm. You know, what if those plants versus zombies drawings, were repeated 40 times on a roll of fabric and like beautiful silkscreen Scandinavian, like Mary Metco style mm-hmm. fabric. And like you could just like, it would be a sculpture on the wall and it would only be sold as a repeat. You could only buy like one, one yard of it or whatever. Yeah. And then you could stretch it if you wanted or whatever. And then it would just deplete. Mm-hmm. And that's like my dream project. The reason I'm saying it on here is because, like, it's so financially insurmountable for me right now to make these, like, $2,000 screens. Like, I, I have a lead for you. We'll talk, oh, okay. We'll yeah, talk let's afterwards. talk. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, I actually wrote to Mary Metco mm-hmm. um, and tried to get them to let me come there. But I don't think I'm, like, I don't think I'm, like, if I had, like, a, a museum, like, letterhead, I think maybe they would look at it. But mm-hmm. I did go to undergrad with the granddaughter of the founder, and she submitted oh, cool. it, but never heard back. That's a big company oh yeah i mean it's like yeah and i'm sure there's lots of finnish artists that would like to work at the factory in finland too you know that's true (laughs) so where can people see your work um currently do you have things coming up or yeah um i'm really excited i'm gonna do a two-person show with jesse harrod who's an artist another textile artist whose work i absolutely love and she's become a really close friend Mm -hmm. she uh, did the Fire Island Artist Residency, so I met her that way. But I try not to, like, get too socially involved with right. the residents. It's, like, because occasionally I have to be, like, the bad cop. So yeah, I just kind of insert yourself in that right. too much. Yeah. But afterwards, I just, like, really wanted to be friends with her and we became friends. She's the head of textiles at Tyler. Mm-hmm. And this space in Philly contacted me um, and asked me if I'd want to be in a two-person show. And it turned out it was with Jesse. And, like, we had been talking about wanting to do a two-person show. That's weird. For, like, <laughs> two years. Yeah. And then, like, unbeknownst to those people they asked us both to do it not even knowing we knew each it's other meant to be. it was meant to be so in may that's going to happen also in philly in philly at grizzly grizzly 
uh, really cool artist run space. And then um, Liz Collins, who uh, is another fantastic artist, textile artist, she is curating this kind of immersive uh, salon style show similar to her Cave of Secrets installation at the New Museum mm-hmm. during the last um, The Trigger show. Yeah. She's going to curate another big show. Um, it's going to be at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division in the LGBTQ Center um, where I've curated shows for mm-hmm. Fire in the past. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to show a photograph that's like really not really old, but it's older and like kind of explicit, which mm-hmm. I think people don't associate me with. But right. if you Google me, it's like these like six photographs that I made like 10 years ago are like the first thing that comes up. They're out like, there. like there's my dick. <laughs> like every undergrad I've ever taught, like I know is like watching me come into the room and they're like, I've seen his dick, oh, but <laughs> it's like kind of weird, but it's like, whatever. Well, I got nothing to hide at this point. Nope. Yeah. Nope. And it's not that impressive. So it's fine. <laughs> not showing off. They know I'm not showing off. So it's like, you know, there's that. So I'm going to show that. And then, um, yeah, I mean, Spring break was really interesting in that a lot of people who I think knew I was an artist and that I ran the Fire Island Artist Residency, but had never really gotten to see what I did like at Critical Mass. Yeah. um, Got to see like five really like larger scale pieces and like we're like, oh, this is what those drawings become. And like I think it so I have some studio visits coming up. I mean, who knows? But um my my job right now is to just like tear it up at the Queens Museum until September because mm-hmm. actually really until July because then I go out to Fire Island to run the residency. So you're pretty much going to be done. And then point. I come back and like a week later I got to get out of there. Yeah. So I think I'm going to move to the Bronx. I mean, I'm 11 minutes from the Bronx where I live in Astoria, mm-hmm. just over the bridge. Yeah. And it just seems like I could maybe get another a larger space there. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, my strategy has always been like get a space that's much bigger than I need, divide it up, and then sublet. Right. Because financially, I've just always needed to do that to yeah. make it work. Yeah. But that's that. I mean, it worked for like twelve years in my last space, so I think I'm gonna have to try and do that again. Might be time. It's scary though. Yeah. Like I'm gonna have to put all my stuff in storage and then figure it out and like. Moving studios is to not is have a studio like that. Thing. You feel very vulnerable. I feel like as an artist, when you don't have a space designated to work in, even yeah. if it's temporary, because it's like, well, like, who knows how temporary? You know, it could. You know, yeah. that's a scary thought. So yeah. I'm just like, I'm, I'm getting ready to deal with that. I've of course pl- applied to other residencies, so maybe yeah. something else will, will work out. Cool. Yeah. And then you do have a website. I do. Is it just your name.com? Yeah, it's chrisboja.com. B-O-G-I-A, like Borgia with no R. <laughs> it was great to meet you. It was so nice to yeah, meet you, too. Yeah, thanks for coming over. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Okay. Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can follow Sound and Vision on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. And you can find the podcast, more information, and images I take from the podcasts at soundandvisionpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation of any amount on the webpage. The intro music and introduction was lended by Michael Lovett of the band Nazca Lines. You can catch Michael moonlighting in the band Metronomy. The artist introduction music and outro music was provided by Lullatone. For more information about myself and my artwork, check out my website, paintchanger.com, or find my work at Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Maho Kubota Gallery in Tokyo, Hezi Cohen Gallery in Tel Aviv, and Studio La Chita Gallery in Verona. Thank you for listening.